0: Hello and welcome once again to this week's episode of 101 George Street, the podcast from Mowbray, Scotland's National Centre for Children's Literature and Storytelling. My name is John Malloy and each week I invite a guest onto the show from the worlds of children's literature, storytelling and creative learning. The theme for this week's show is storytelling and young people. My guest for today is a rising star on the Scottish storytelling scene. At the age of 17, she is one of the youngest apprentices at the Scottish Storytelling Centre and has already made a name for herself as an engaging storyteller in her native Aberdeenshire. Today we welcome Ailsa Dixon to the show. for the people at home it's worth mentioning that we are recording in august so we're still recording over zoom and over webcams which if you're listening to this and you can hear some odd noises and strange background noises that's the reason and i do apologize ailsa what is your favorite children's story
1: Oh, as a very little child, I loved the Gruffalo and I had it memorised and recited it in the back of the car. And I must have driven my parents absolutely insane because I would not stop saying it over and over again for about a year. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. It sounds like you were very popular in the car. (laughs) Definitely. When people think of storytelling in Scotland, they often think of very traditional settings of, of older people gathered around in a room talking and discussing stories from years ago, but you're very much a young person learning storytelling now today. What attracted you to storytelling?
1: Um, for me, it was sort of a collision of different interests. So I've always loved reading and writing stories. And I've always been very much into traditional music and into the sort of traditional folk scene. So I do a lot of traditional singing and playing Kaley bands and things like that while keeping up with my writing and reading and things. And I think I first became aware of storytelling as a thing when I was about 13, 14. And I applied to a thing called the What's Your Story Programme, which is run by the Scottish Book Trust. Mm. And I applied as a short story writer. Um, to the, uh, the Scottish um, Book Trust runs the What's Your Story Programme, and it gives seven young teens from across Scotland the chance to spend a year developing their skills. Mm. So they'd pair you up with a professional mentor and you do lots of cool things. So we got to spend a week in More, and do a lot of amazing um, writing things. Mm. Um, and so I applied as a short story writer and in the time between me sending out my application and then them telling me I had a place, I became really interested in storytelling. Um, mostly through the work of folk artist called Green Polwart who just released a sort of theatre piece and an album called Wind Resistance where she'd really merged music and traditional storytelling and spoken word and story into one really beautiful experience. Uh, suddenly I was like, oh, there's this new thing that's like, it, it's got all the things I like about traditional music and it's got the story and the history But it's completely different and people make it up on the spot, but it's tradition and my mind was completely blown. So when I got the call from Scottish Book Trust and they asked me, so what what would you like to specialise in? I was like, okay, so I know I said short story writing in my application, but do you think I could possibly spend a year working on storytelling? And they were brilliant, because I would not really said much about it in my application, but they were like, yeah, sure, we can do that. And they paired me up with Larry Don, who is a children's writer. She's written lots of amazing books, like First Aid for Fairies and Other Fabled Beasts, that series, and the Spellchaser series, and lots of collections of traditional tales, and she's also a storyteller. Mm-hmm. So they paired me up with her, and we spent a year working together She was teaching me lots about about writing, and lots and lots about traditional storytelling, and I just completely fell in love. And I've been doing that, so so I was 14 when that started, and I'm 17 now, so that's a couple of years. And from there, I got involved in the Scottish International Storytelling Festival. I did some stuff there, and um, storytelling just everywhere, anywhere people would let me,
0: do you perform to your peers, your friends or people in school, for example?
1: Um, sometimes, not very often, but I run a group for first, first years, um, a sort of reading and writing group. So I tell them stories quite a lot and I've told to my English class once or twice and on a few other occasions, but not an awful lot.
0: And what was the reaction that you got, I asked this because I used to work with, a lot with young actors who would perform in front of um, their peers who were 17, 16, all the way down to 14 actually. And they would have different reactions from their friends when they're performing and I'm quite interested in how, how did they receive you?
1: It was a very mixed response, mm. definitely. The first years, the juniors, they were very, very into it. They, they, they loved it, especially the very grisly stories. Mm. If, if I told things about dragons with blood spurting everywhere, they were super into that. My peers, like my direct peers, some were a bit confused. Um, I don't think many people my age had sort of heard of storytelling, traditional storytelling as a thing, mm. before. But I got a really positive reaction from lots of people in my um, English class. And some of my closer friends actually started to tell me some of their traditional stories. Really? And, you know, yeah, um, so... One of my good friends, Maya, actually told me lots and lots of brilliant tales from Poland when I started telling stories. Um, so that, that was brilliant.
0: You're continuing a very fine tradition in Scotland where, and the fact that you're so young and by telling your stories to people your age or, or a little bit younger than you, you're helping them tell stories to you, so you're keeping this tradition alive.
1: Yeah, keeping the tradition alive is really really important for me because I go to lots of storytelling events and down in Edinburgh and things, and I'm the, like the only person, mostly the only person under about 25 in the room. Generally the only person under like 40. <laughs> so <laughs> there might be me and like one other person who's about 28. And I'm like, guys, you need to get more young people. Otherwise, I'm really sorry, but one day you're not going to be there. And there's going to be a big gaping hole in the wonderful thing that is traditional storytelling. So it's so important for me to just keep telling stories and to share the love of storytelling with as many people as I possibly can.
0: Now, I know you live in Aberdeenshire. How do you commute to the Central Belt and commute to the Scottish Storytelling Centre?
1: Well, I'm very grateful to Creative Scotland and the Nurturing Young Talent Fund, who gave me a very generous... Um, grant to allow me to get the buses and the trains and actually gave me the money to let me take my dad along as well for um, for the ones when I was slightly younger because trains and buses are hard and complicated especially when you're in a city that you haven't really been to so they were absolutely brilliant and gave me lots of amazing money thank you very very much Creative Scotland
0: (laughs) it's great to have support
1: yes definitely
0: Absolutely. Now you mentioned that you were very interested from an early age in the folk scene, and I know that you're a keen harpist. How do you think being immersed from an early age in the folk scene and in traditional music, how has that influenced you?
1: Oh um, my influences from very small was probably well, my parents um introduced me to an awful lot of traditional music. So my dad was very into folk music and introduced me to well, people like Kareem Powert um, Michael Mara, um, the work of Hamish Henderson. Actually, my dad introduced me to, at quite a young age, he was a fantastic ethnologist, collecting Mm. stories and songs. And my mum introduced me to a lot of great (laughs) books. My mum and dad are both English graduates, so we have far too many books in our house. It's absolutely ridiculous.
0: You can never have too many books.
1: Uh, Nobody should get (laughs) two English graduates to marry because the, the amount of books is actually a damage to the floorboard. Yeah, so lots and lots of books, Um, yeah. So I've been doing traditional singing for a very very long time Mm. and I've always loved ballads that tell stories through songs Mm -hmm. and the idea that I'm singing a song that somebody two, three hundred years ago has also sung, it was very important to me that I was continuing this tradition and connecting with people that came before me. I've just always felt this connection with history and with story
0: and yeah what inspires you as a storyteller because obviously being a storyteller as I understand it it's not like uh, you're an actor and you're performing a monologue and it's all pre-rehearsed and you've got a script and you've, you learn the script word for word. Being a storyteller, there's something a little bit more immediate about being a storyteller where you're allowed to improvise around your story. You're allowed to, to make the story real and alive at that given moment. So you need to have inspiration or a source of inspiration for yourself. Where do you get that from?
1: Yeah, def- there's a wonderful travel traveller proverb that says a story is told eye to eye, mind to mind and heart to heart. Mm. So that connection is really important. I've always been really inspired by the natural landscape. Um, I love stories that are sort of origin stories trying to explain the natural phenomena mm. of, you know, the world around us. So there's lots of um, great stories about how mountains came into being, how islands came into being. There's even a great one about geothermal springs. The idea that a Kelpie, um, it's a wonderful Kelpie story where a Kelpie takes a wife and then the wife is really cold underneath the water so he steals a blacksmith and gets him to build a forge underneath the water to heat up his wife and make sure she's not cold and that's why we have geothermal springs in some lost Scotland. I just (laughs) love that! Before science people were like hey so this hot water Kelpie's wife, Kelpie's wife, that, that's the reason we have hot water. The
0: stories was a way of explaining what was happening around us at a time when we didn't know, and the, the best explanation were the stories that we created for
1: ourselves. Definitely, and it's just that human creativity, that's just looking at the world around us in a very unique way, and creating this whole mythology and lore about very simple things and imbuing them with this really deep meaning. I'm also inspired quite a lot by... um, I love a good heroine. Love a good heroine. People doing daring and imaginative things that you probably, or people you know, would never get to do in their lives. So Mm. really love a great battle scene and girls with swords and things.
0: Would you say strong female characters is a reoccurring theme in your storytelling?
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I feel, especially as a young feminist storyteller, in the folk scene, which is wonderful and I love it, but it has had quite a strong male dominated history i feel a duty to be proud of the stories that i pass on and people can tell whatever stories they like but for me personally and for my peace of mind i like to tell stories that have people doing heroines who are doing it for reasons for for themselves for reasons other than wanting to achieve a stable happy home life
0: i completely understand what you're saying because Again, one of the ways that I, I, and I'm guessing here, that storytelling, traditional storytelling, can stay relevant and continue in the future and today, is that it reflects the the lives of the people that are living now and the values of the people that are living now as well. So where in the past, maybe female roles were a certain way. Now we can say, oh, these are the stories, these are the new stories where we champion the female uh, Mm -hmm. role. So absolutely.
1: And I think it's really important, not only to tell stories now that have strong female characters, but also to look back into the stories that were being told hundreds of years ago that had strong female characters, Mm -hmm. saying that this is not a modern thing. Girls have been out there doing awesome things in stories and in real life for millennia. There's some awesome heroine stories from like Greece and the Byzantine era um, of people doing awesome, feminist, amazing things, fighting volcanoes and stuff.
0: I know you're an apprentice at the Scottish Storytelling Centre. How important is it to learn from other storytellers, do you think?
1: That's the most important thing for me at the moment. I'm definitely still an apprentice, I'm still feeling my way, I'm still learning and even when you know you're a professional storyteller, the way that we improve and the way that we build our repertoire is by sitting down and listening to other storytellers tell their stories, looking at what works, what doesn't, asking them if we can use their stories and tell their stories to other people. Um, and. The storytelling apprenticeship has meant an awful lot to me. I've only been doing it for about, I'm just coming up to my second year. It lasts about three years, sometimes longer. And I have learned so much already in such a short space of time.
0: Have you learned things with regards to technique and delivery, vocal projection, how to work a room, how to work a room and command a space? I'm interested about the kind of things that you learn as an apprentice, as a storytelling apprentice.
1: Yeah, you learn lots of different things. It's a very, it's a very wide sort of selection of things you learn. Um, Quite often people do give workshops there and people at the end of their apprenticeships to share the skills that they've learned. So I've learned in the time I've been there I've learned about physicality and about gestures and how to how to make sure that you're not being distracting with your hands and with your body but that everything that you do enhances the heart of the story Mm. I've learned about voice projection it's been great we've got access to the theatre before lockdown we had access to the theatre at Mm. the um, Scottish Storytelling Centre so you could really practice projecting your voice right to the back You learn about practical things as well. You learn about bookings and Mm. how to things that I hadn't really thought about when I was starting this creative journey about how to survive as a professional artist in the mean business world. (laughs) Still haven't quite got my head around that, but I'm working on it.
0: But it's great that you are learning about the business side of things because it's all very well saying that you're a creative person, that you're a storyteller. You could be the best storyteller in the world, but if you can't get yourself booked you can't share your stories to a wider audience.
1: Yeah, that's really important. And I am glad that they're teaching us that. I actually learned how to do my first invoice a while ago for my first ever play storytelling game. So that, that was a milestone.
0: Ailsa, as well as being an apprentice at the Scottish Storytelling Centre, you're also one of the contributors for their, their online blog detailing what's happening with storytelling in Scotland as well as storytelling actually at the centre. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so the blog was really interesting. I was asked to write a piece for it sometime last year. So I would finished my, my What's Your Story journey. I just graduated and I hadn't yet started this um, apprenticeship. So I was at a, quite an in-between place mm. and they asked me to write a blog reflecting on what it was like as a young Scottish storyteller. And it was a really useful thing to sort of look back on my journey so far and it sort of forced me to reflect and think about what was, you know, you know, what my aims were for the future. And it was a really good place to start talking about why it's important for young storytellers to do awesome things. Mm. And for there to actually be young storytellers in Scotland because there's not an awful lot of us.
0: But thanks to you, I think as a role model, hopefully we'll have more young Scottish storytellers coming through the ranks and getting out there and sharing their stories.
1: Hopefully, and that's something I'd really like to sort of work on and help. Once I've I've moved through the process myself, I'd like one of the things I focus on to be encouraging young people and helping train young people to be storytellers and to think of it as a viable thing that they can be doing with their lives.
0: Ailsa, I know you've prepared a short story for us, and I'm really looking forward to you performing the story for uh, me and for the people who are listening at home. Could you introduce the story and uh, would you like to perform it?
1: Oh, yes, definitely. Um, This is a story, this is actually the last story I told in public before we all went down into lockdown, so I've been thinking a lot about it lately. This is a story I learned from my grandfather And it takes place when your grandfather's great-grandfather was probably still just a child. In the islands of Orkney, a long, long time ago, there lived a little boy. The little boy was nice, and he was friendly, and quite popular, but he did not like going to school. Whenever the sun was high, and the sea was looking blue and beautiful, he would run away. From the children gathered at the playground and run down to the beach and spend the day playing in the sand with the shells and the limpets and fishing in the sea and generally just having a brilliant time. On this particular day, when all his friends were heading to the schoolhouse, he saw the sun beating down on the beach and he thought it was just too beautiful a day to waste inside. So he ran down to the shore and spent the morning having fun, fishing, playing with limpets, and wandering across the sand. It was about midday when he heard a strange noise. It was almost like somebody singing, but somebody singing in a strange, mysterious way that he hadn't quite heard before. The sound grew louder and louder as he walked. Towards the end of the beach, and he saw a seal bobbing in the water with big, beautiful brown eyes. And in the sand by his feet, he saw a small seal pup gazing up at him. The seal in the water hadn't noticed him and was still diving about beneath the waves. And although the boy was quite nice and friendly and popular, he perhaps wasn't the kindest of boys. And as he looked down at the seal by his feet, he thought of the girl that sat in front of him in class and her beautiful black hair. And he thought how good the seal cap would look on those beautiful brown, brown locks. And he thought maybe if he brought the seal skin and turned it into a beautiful hat for her, maybe she would talk to him. So he picked up a stone from the beach and raised it above his head, right above the seal pup. But at that moment he heard once again the strange song coming from the water, and he looked around and he saw the seal with its beautiful great brown eyes staring at him, and he turned away. It was just a seal, and he thought of the beautiful girl and thought of how good the seal cap would look on her head. And he raised the stone up once more. But once again, the song came from across the water. And he put down the stone. He couldn't do it. They walked home. As the years passed by, he grew older, wiser, and kinder. He grew into a father a great grandfather and although he didn't do much on the croft anymore he still liked to go fishing. On this day when the sun was high and the sea was looking blue he walked down to the beach. In Orkney there is a special beach where the North Sea and the Atlantic Ocean collide and the waves that they create are magnificent and is where you get the best fish. The man knew this, so he walked down right to the very end of the beach and he cast out his nets. It wasn't going very well. He sat on a rock and he cast out net after net and rod after rod, but no fish were coming in. He was just about to head home because the tide was just about to turn when suddenly his nets began to fill with beautiful, beautiful silver fish and he began pulling them in, net after net, of gorgeous herring. And he was so happy and so overjoyed by the fact that he had such a bountiful supply, that he didn't notice the tide creeping further and further towards him. He didn't notice when the tide surrounded the rock he was sitting on. He didn't notice when the tide crept so far up the rock that his feet began to get wet. He only noticed when the water began to lap at his ankles and he looked back and he saw the beach was completely covered by water. He knew it was going to be incredibly difficult to get back home and as he sat on the rock desperately trying to think of a way, the water kept climbing higher and higher and the waves from the North Sea and the waves from the Atlantic Ocean crashed together with spray and salt slipping in his hair and his face. The water went higher and higher, up to his knees and his waist. And eventually he was just standing on the rock with the water almost at his shoulders. And he knew that this would probably be it. Just then he heard a strange noise. Coming from far across the water. He listened again, but he couldn't hear anything, and suddenly he felt a weight pushing at his stomach, and he felt himself pushed backwards through the water, backwards and backwards. He thought something must have, some sort of tide or current must be carrying him. He closed his eyes, and when he opened them, he was sitting on the beach. The rock he'd been standing on was completely submerged by water, and in the bay, he saw a seal with beautiful brown eyes staring at him. And he heard the song once more. And he knew that the Selkies of Orkney never forget.
0: Ailsa, that was wonderful. Thank you so much.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much for listening.
0: So, what is the name of that s- story?
1: I don't actually know. My stories never really have names.
0: That's fine. That's absolutely fine.
1: <laughs> I think in my head it's called something like the Sad Selkie or the Orcadian Selkie. I learned that story from a wonderful harpist and storyteller called Heather Yule about a year ago.
0: Fantastic. Really well performed um, and uh, the delivery was fantastic. It was great. Thank you. What's next for you as a storyteller?
1: My immediate plans are to finish up my apprenticeship. So I've got another two years to go Mm. um, and I'm just going into sixth year. So I'll do my second year while still at sixth year. And then hopefully, fingers crossed, I will get into uni and I'm planning to go to Edinburgh Uni and to study Scottish Ethnology, which is actually the study of um, how countries experience culture um, so it's really interesting. In my mind, I'm just going to be studying storytelling, traditional arts and culture for like four years. It's going to be brilliant. Can't wait. And so I will be doing my final third year of my apprenticeship while in Edinburgh. And I'm just going to plan to soak up as much storytelling as possible in that year. And then hopefully I will get onto the directory and become a professional storyteller and do awesome professional storyteller things and hopefully, hopefully I'll be able to keep storytelling as a career and um, maybe working somewhere like the Village Storytelling Centre in Glasgow mm. or the Storytelling Centre in um, Edinburgh or just keep doing freelance things. I'm really interested in working with storytelling as a means of empowerment to mm. sort of communities um, and encouraging people to tell their stories. So. I really hope I can do something with storytelling and social justice um, as I grow older.
0: Absolutely, and we would love to have you down in My Brains on Freeze. And we're here to champion young storytellers, so we'd love to have you down. That would be brilliant. What advice would you give to a young person who's thinking of becoming a
1: storyteller? Just go for it. Completely go for it. Story- the storytelling scene is so warm and encouraging and friendly and everybody is looking to grow the storytelling family. So there's lots of storytelling clubs that might be in your area. If you live in the Central Belt, very jealous, I live in Aberdeenshire and have to get like buses and trains and things. You can go to the storytelling center in Edinburgh, um, which has lots and lots of events and just soak up storytelling. Watch as many different storytellers as possible and um, ask them if you can retell their stories, tell stories to younger siblings, maybe talk to your school librarian and see if you can start a storytelling club in your school. But just get out there. There's lots of open mic nights and folk clubs and things that will be more than happy to let you hone your craft. And I look forward to meeting you on the storytelling scene.
0: Ailsa, this has been absolutely fantastic, really inspirational. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been great.